We're here today to talk about cover cropping management decisions, and we appreciate everyone uh, joining the webinar. Today's webinar will last uh, an hour. Um, we're going to have two speakers. Um, first, we'll cover off an introduction, followed by Cover Crops 101 with Ann Verhollen of OMAFRA. And at the end of Ann's presentation, we'll field questions from the floor. Following Ann's presentation, we'll have Chris McNaughton from the University of Guelph Ridgetown. And today, Chris is going to talk about managing cover crops and difficulty to control weeds. We'll follow that with questions as well. So just a few housekeeping items before we get going. Please eliminate, um, or please place your microphones on mute to eliminate the background noise. These webinars are recorded and they are posted on our Grain Farmers of Ontario YouTube page. So if you want to view them at a later time or have colleagues that be interested, feel free to do so. With regards to the Q&A, uh, questions can be asked via the chat box throughout the webinar. And if you could please direct these to Megan McKimmy uh, for speaker questions. And please feel free throughout the entire uh, webinar uh, to direct these questions to Megan. So just a quick overview for those that may be on this webinar for the first time. Uh, the Grain Talk series is something that Grain Farmers of Ontario has started uh, over the last few months. Uh, this will be our third webinar that we'll be hosting. The idea behind these webinars is really to provide a forum to communicate topics of interest to the industry and really allow an avenue for, for farmer members and CCAs to, to provide feedback and a forum to really discuss pertinent topics that relate to, to agriculture. So first, I'd like to introduce Ann Verhollen. Uh, Ann's going to be speaking on Cover Crops 101, what you need to know about cover cropping. Uh, so Grain Farmers asked me to do Cover Crops 101. And so we're going to start with a little bit of a discussion around cover crops. And then I really wanted to show you some of the places where you can find some better information or some other information anyways. And almost every cover crop talk you go to right now, you're going to see somebody talk about all the benefits. And I recognize that you probably already know the benefits. And I always talk about wind and water erosion, building soil structure, you know, all the lovely root exudates, building carbon, those kinds of things. But there are some other things going on um, that we're starting to get a little bit better knowledge about. And I think there's places where cover crops can show a real return on investment very early on. And one of these has to do with weed control. So here's some pictures from Mike Kelbra. And I got to give Mike credit because he did something that I really wish I had done. I don't know about you, but there's a bunch of fields in my neighborhood that drive me crazy every year because they'll be in wheat and then there's no clover, there's no nothing else, and they grow up in weeds. And that's the kind of thing I see. And I see the weeds that you're seeing on the right hand of your screen. On the left hand of the screen, you'll see uh, just above the photo credit from Mike is a field of oats that were planted about a few weeks earlier. And here's a close-up of those two fields. So field one, the growers made the choice to put a cover crop in. On um, the other one, there's been no choice made and a real opportunity missed because you can see Mother Nature tends to fill that void. And Mike, I got to give him credit because he not only did he drive by and get frustrated, he also got out and did some uh, quarter meter square type harvest of weeds. And you, so you can see under field one where we've got the cover crop, it's doing a great job, even though it's oats, it's doing a great job of suppressing and, and reducing the size of the weeds that are getting established after weed harvest. Whereas on the fallow side, we've got some large, well-established weeds that you know are going to be adding to the seed bank. And it's not just those kinds of things, but we're also seeing that cover crops are a really good piece for our toolbox to help suppress resistant weeds. So again, some, some pictures from Mike from this spring, looking at a rye cover crop versus the, the edge of the field where you can see that we've got uh, Canada fleabane, and then he followed it up looking at the fleabane that was present. There, there's still fleabane present in the rye cover, but it's very small. You can see it's only about 10 millimeters whereas the stuff that's got no competition with the, the rye, it's a lot more numerous and it's certainly much more advanced uh, physiologically and in just overall height. 
So it is, uh, cover crops offer a real opportunity, uh, one more of those tools, and it's really hard for weeds to, to get resistant to things like that. So the best place, I think, and it's, it's really timely doing this, this uh, webinar right now, the best place to start is to establish cover crops in winter wheat. So here's a tweet from Tori back in the in the winter time, and this might be a little extreme. It's like skiing with your your uh, applicator, uh, but Gerard was out putting on his red clover and hoping that the snow would take it into his wheat. And it's a great place to start. We know with wheat, uh, when we frost seed red clover, that uh, we've got a chance for a really good nitrogen credit. And I recognize this year has been a challenging, challenging year for red clover. A lot of it was there in the spring, and then with the dry weather, we've had this. This summer it's, it's definitely been a challenge but we know we've got a good nitrogen credit and we've got some excellent work by um, Bill Dean and Dave Hooker here's the results from and I'm sure you've probably seen these ones before too um, the results from Dave Hooker uh, from 2010 to 2016 on the long-term rotation and tillage trial just looking at the difference that the red clover in in the rotation makes and keep in mind when you're looking at this chart, all of this has had at least 180 units of N. So it's not the nitrogen credit coming from the red clover. And we're just comparing uh, corn yields after wheat, either with or without red clover. And you can see that we're still getting a nine bushel advantage on average from having red clover in the rotation. So nitrogen's non-limiting, um, but we're still getting a boost from having that diversity that the red clover is bringing into that rotation. And that's pretty significant. Now, what about the other times where, like this year, where clover didn't catch, or the herbicide choices that you've made or had to make just make it not an option? There's a few things to think about there. One is the timing. Where are you at with what growing season is left? So where are you in the province? If you're down here by Ridgetown, your options are pretty open. If you're further north or, or more to the east, you might be a little bit more limited in what you think about growing. Got to consider what the next crop's going to be. How much residue do I want to deal with? What is it? Is it corn? Is it beans? Um, things like that. There's lots of options out there that can be very inexpensive, things like oats, barley. There are fellows who go in after wheat if they need feed and they'll even put sorghum sudan down and get one or two cuts off of it, particularly if they've got manure to apply. And you need to consider adjusting your seeding rate based on the goals. And the picture that you see at the bottom just is a reminder that spreading the chaff is really, really important if you're looking at putting a cover crop in because you'll get a lot of um, suppression because of the nitrogen demand of that chaff. Just the wide C to N ratio is really sucking all the nitrogen in that field and just tending to suppress anything that we've got growing there. One question I often get is, or I'll get the, the, the flippant comment at a meeting, well, I've got lots of volunteer weed. I'll just make sure I blow out more over the back. Yeah, that's, that's an opportunity and, it, and it's certainly possible. The only thing is, the work that we've done down here, looking in the three county area under some soil and crop funding, uh, looking at various cover crop uh, approaches, we did use a volunteer wheat uh, check strip in all of it. It was replicated. So here's some examples from one year in particular, just looking at a, a plot, the strip that was the volunteer wheat in Ridgetown, one in Thamesville and another one near Thamesville. Uh, very different soil types. Uh, ranging from sandy soil to a heavier clay and different combine setups and obviously considerably different weed pressure and different amounts of grain that were going over the back. And we get a very inconsistent volunteer wheat stand. So yeah, you can make a cover crop from it, but it's not a good cover crop. And as you can see in that one Thamesville, October 11th, while we've got a fair bit of growth, a lot of that was weeds. That really wasn't volunteer wheat. That was weeds, and again, we're contributing to the weed seed bank. The other thing with cover crops that you have to keep in mind is the rules of agronomy do not change just because you're doing cover crops. And I know that's hard to hear from me because I love cover crops so passionately, but it doesn't change. So you still have to consider that soil to seed contact. 
So when you go to plant a cover crop, yes, broadcasting it is a whole lot faster and cheaper. And there's lots of people who really don't want to put the wear and tear on a drill at this time of year, especially in some very dry soils. But if you want to get a solid, consistent stand of cover crops, you have to set it up to be a solid, consistent stand. Then there's the competition from volunteer wheat. If you've harvested a few weeks ago and you're thinking about getting a cover crop in now, that volunteer wheat, while it's an inconsistent stand, has got a chance to um, germinate and emerge, and it is ahead of anything you're going to plant. So it's, if you want to get a solid, consistent stand of your cover crop, you're probably going to have to do something to control that volunteer wheat. The other thing to consider is your seeding rates and the depth. Seeding rates get determined based on what you're planting, and of course, just like anything else, you need to look at the number of seeds per pound, and also a little bit on your goal. So if you're going for forage, which we'll get to in a second, um, you're going to have a higher seeding rate than if you're just going for a basic cover for weed suppression and soil building. The last thing to consider is depth, and excuse me, especially if you're using a drill, because odds are the last time you used that drill was to plant soybeans probably late May, early June, and often the depth we've got soybeans at at that time in the season is a little deeper than we want to be planting some of these cover crops. In particular, consider, consider what your mix is, and you're going to be setting the drill based on whatever the largest seed is, and so if it's peas in the mix, you're going to have to set it based on peas, but you still may have some smaller things in there like clovers and things like that. If they're planted at two inches plus, they have a really tough time coming up from there, and you just just won't see them expressing themselves as well in that mix. So of course, um, one option with cover crop after wheat right now is you can produce some amazing forage, and for anybody who is a little bit dry for, for their hay cut, this gives you some opportunities. Oats make great baleage, um, but again, uh, some work that was done, done with the Thames Valley soil and crop, uh, Peter Johnson led some of this, looking at oats, oats and peas and barley, you need to up your seeding rate uh, much higher than we would do for a basic cover if you're actually going to take forage from it. The other thing is be patient. So in August, this is the kind of thing you'll probably see coming up with the wheat. If might be better now that we've had a fair bit of rain. They'll be pretty small. It won't look like there's much of anything but give it time and by October, November, we should have a really good stand of cover across there. And it will do a good job of helping to break down some of that wheat straw and make it a little bit more fragile and certainly um, accommodate a lot of the fungi getting themselves embedded into the residue and starting to break things down. So a few things to consider. If you're looking at doing some mixes after wheat, these can help to build diversity you need to consider how much soil nitrogen you're likely to have. So after wheat harvest, if you've had a good wheat uh, yield, odds are there's not a whole lot of nitrogen left in that soil. So you might want to add in a few more um, nitrogen fixing uh, cover crops, like some of the legumes and things like that, because that will help to support the rest of it. You really want to back off on the rates of some of the very dominating species, anything that's in the brassica family. So radish, uh, kale, turnip, they all have a, a growth habit that's more of a big rosette, so basically they really look like an umbrella, do a great job of suppressing weeds, but they also tend to really push back on every other cover crop species you've got in that mix. And there are some species you really want to avoid, um, things that are going to set seed. So buckwheat right now is my big bugaboo. There's a few mixes out there that include buckwheat. And buckwheat is a lovely cover crop and it has a place, don't get me wrong, but in a mix where you're going to plant it after wheat and you're not going to be controlling that um, until late fall or, you know, Canadian Thanksgiving or something like that, by then buckwheat is flowered, set seed, and you've got seed there as a potential weed species for the, the coming year. And it's the gift that just keeps on giving. So avoid things like, like buckwheat. Um, and just to go back for a second, the radish that I was talking about, when we're talking mixes, usually what we're doing is backing off with radish because it's a little bit larger seeded brassica to no more than two pounds uh, per acre, and that will still give you lots of radish. 
some of the smaller seeded things like mustards and um, kale and turnip, you're probably back to half a pound, quarter of a pound, depending. Now, uh, looking again at seeding, the comment I get repeatedly from a lot of these guys who are into cover crops, less is more. Really depends on your goal. Like I said, if you're doing forages, you want that higher seeding rate. But if you're just looking for a nice light cover, less really is more. So we're not talking, you know, 50, 60 pounds of seed. We're talking more in the 30s and 40s, depending on what the mix is. And as we get later in the season, if you're looking for erosion protection, you really need to increase your seeding rate just to make sure that you have enough root mass there to hold the soil and enough top growth. If we're not going to get a lot of growth later into September, then you need to increase the number of plants so that you still have good cover. So to get the most out of cover crops, the first things first, do your research. Some of the most successful guys, successful growers that I know, spend a lot of time looking through the internet and thinking and looking at YouTube videos and talking to people and visiting and doing. Right now is a great time to go out for, for twilight tours and, and field days and things like that. It's good to start small, but treat it like a crop. So you gotta treat it not as an afterthought, it's gotta be something you're gonna give some priority to because if you're gonna adopt it across a larger uh, acreage, you need to really assess it well. Start simple. So winter killed species, things like oats, radish, keep the mixes simple if that's what you're trying and keep your seeding rates low so that you can get used to the amount of residue that you're likely to have. A lot of times in the fall, that residue looks really intimidating on oats and radish, but by springtime, if you've got some active biology and a good winter, it'll be dead. The other thing, keep it affordable. Um, cover crops shouldn't cost you your shirt. Know your goal and adjust your species and your seeding rates. Again, pay attention to the agronomics. We need to have that good seed to soil contact to get off to the races. One of the observations we had with our early work uh, looking at cover crops was the difference between seeding with a drill and broadcast could be, depending on, on weather conditions, it could be more than a week's growth. Um, that starts to, to make a big difference at this time of year as we're starting to get into shorter days and just starting to run out of, of growing season, no matter how hot it is right now. It's good to target those early harvested crops. Those are the easy places to get cover crops in. So after wheat and other small grains, after early vegetables, after silage corn. And then my really, really key point here is plan how you're going to terminate the cover crop. Have a plan in place. Know that it's gonna all die or it's not all gonna die. And keep in mind, those winter killed species that we talk about, like oats and radish, we talk about them as being winter killed, but we have had some winters lately where they haven't all died, either because it's been an extremely mild winter or we've had snow that has hit while everything was still alive and insulated the, those crops or chunks of radish root, things like that, and kept them so that they could uh, get going again in the spring. That is why I also have here have a plan B. So I have your plan A for termination and have a plan B in, in mind so that you're ready to rock and roll with it as soon as you have to. So a couple places where you can find some more information. There's a really cool decision tool that's part of the Midwest Cover Crop Council and Ontario is part of the Midwest Cover Crop Council. So if you go to their website, it's pretty easy to find, you'll see that there's a thing there called selector tools. And if you go into the selector tools, you'll have a choice between a row crop tool or a vegetable tool. Currently, Ontario does not have a vegetable tool under this, this uh, website. We just have a row crop tool. And so if you go in there, you'll be able to look under location information. You'll see Ontario, and then you can select your county. And when you do that, we've got the frost freeze weather data, long-term weather data, backing this up behind it. So that's why you're asked to select your own county or your own location. And then after that, it'll start populating it with a variety of different cover crops and giving you an indication when we can get reliable establishment, when there's a risk to a freezing, and when there's an opportunity for frost seeding. And then you'll see that there's a blue bar there that talks about there's the possibility of aerial seeding or interseeding. So then it takes you through a number of other things as far as asking you to put in what crop it's gonna be when you're planting. Those don't drive a whole lot. The pieces that really drive this 
this website, uh, this decision tool is selecting the drainage information and then selecting the attributes. So what are your goals? Do you want it to be a soil builder? Do you want to have a nitrogen soil source as a nitrogen scavenger, erosion fighter, those kinds of things. And then it'll gradually populate the, the list or depopulate the list actually and suggest various cover crops. And then from there, you can click on those various cover crops and there's an information sheet or, or specs page that has a lot more information about seeding rates and any other comments about concerns or, or tips and things like that. The other thing that you might find useful right now is the Midwest, Midwest Cover Crop Council has also made a mobile app out of their uh, cover crop field guide. So it's very inexpensive. You can just go to the app store and, and pick it up. You pay your subscription and then it'll automatically, it'll tell you to come back in and, and update it every year. And that way you've got all the basics on, on cover crops right with your phone wherever you are. We also have a variety of information available through the Ontario website. Uh, so if you go to ontario.ca slash cover crops, you'll find that we've got a whole selection of information on cover crops. We also have a listing of various people who market cover crops with a listing of what they've got, and we do update that yearly. There's a number of new publications from the postcards on cover crops to some of the new BMP publications on interseeding, winter cover crops, cover crops with manure, and other things like that. So there's, there is a wealth of information out there now to support your cover crop decisions. And if there's any questions, I'd be happy to take them. Thanks, Anne. That was a great overview. Um, had a couple questions come in while you were speaking. And if there are any questions still out there, please feel free to type them in the chat bar and uh, we'll have them answered. So one of the questions came through, um, stated that they've used red clover and wheat for a number of years, but are really unsure how you would suggest I expand the use of cover crops in my corn, soybean, wheat rotation. Okay, um, I have to admit I focused on wheat this time because if I wanted to get into the others, we, uh, Chris wouldn't have any time to talk about killing cover crops. Um, there's other opportunities to get cover crops into the corn and soybean portion of the, the rotation. There is the option of interseeding into the corn. There's a variety of options there, whether you're interseeding at that V4, V5, V6 stage, or you can come back later uh, just prior to harvest or just after harvest at that point, we're looking at rye at late season when we're getting close to corn harvest. Um, we have a few more options in that V4, V5, V6 type of staging. And that's usually where I'd suggest, depending on your herbicide program, you could look at putting clovers down or you could look at something like um, annual ryegrass, which I know Chris is going to talk about killing it and why not to use annual ryegrass. This is one of the few places where I think annual ryegrass actually does have a fit as long as you're um, very in tune with what it's going to take to kill it. Now, trying to get cover crops into the soybean portion of the rotation, yeah, that's a little bit more of a challenge, but you do have a bit bigger window when you get into the fall. If you're not following that soybeans with wheat, then there's the option of going, again, even just wheat or, or cereal rye after soybean harvest and cereal rye certainly will give us enough cover over winter and it will tolerate those cooling temperatures and reducing day lengths um, much better than most other covers uh, being planted in, in late September or through October. Okay, great. That's, that's great. Thanks. Another question that came in uh, was around organic matter and, and building organic matter and asking whether or not multi-species cover crop mixes are preferred for that organic matter building? Oh, that's an excellent question. Um, and I wish I had a really excellent answer. Having any root system there is what's gonna build the organic matter. We're gonna have a better handle on whether we, what size of, of multi-mix we really need. There's some new research that's just been initiated. Grain Farmers has contributed to, to some of it. Um, and it's some plots that Bill Dean and Dave Hooker have growing at Alora and Ridgetown here, looking at corn, soybean, and corn, soybean, wheat rotations 
and then bringing in a variety of different cover crops and organic matter and what's going on with the soil microbiome is all part of that that project. Right now, I'm not sure that it matters whether we're doing big mixes or not. It just matters to get a cover crop in there and getting the root system in there as much as possible. Um, we'll be able to fine tune that with, with time. That's great. Thanks, Anne. Um, I don't see any other questions that have come through. So with that, I want to thank you for taking time to uh, speak with us today on, on cover cropping and definitely giving a, a 101 to the audience and, and providing some resources where they can see, you know, what cover crop would be suited for a particular county and soil type and drainage type. So thanks again, Anne. Thank you. Thanks for the opportunity. Uh, we're going to have Chris McNaughton speak. Uh, Chris, if you can hear me, could you please unmute yourself and begin to share your screen? Okay. So we have gone through with Anne. She's, like everyone said, she's done a great 101. Um, instead of trying to grow your cover crops now, what I'm going to talk a bit about is truthfully trying to get rid of them now that they've done the job that you've put them in there to do. Um, sometimes when we're picking our cover crops, we're, we're looking, um, or one of the jobs that we want our cover crop to do is to help overwinter and make sure we've got um, some ground cover on the soil over the winter so we're not losing any of our soil. That's great, but come spring, that cover crop, it's already done its job, and now essentially it's, it's becoming essentially a weed. We want it out of there um, so that it's not interfering with our crop. And the reality is like any other weed, um, the earlier we can terminate, the better our chances are that we're gonna be successful at getting rid of that weed or that cover crop whose job is done. So some of the um, cover crops that we can pick from that over winter would be annual ryegrass, cereal rye, the clovers, um, winter wheat. Um, like Anne alluded to, I'm going to talk a bit about trying to terminate annual ryegrass, and you'll notice that I use the term trying sometimes. We pick it um, potentially as an overwinter because it established, we can get it established in the fall if we've got good weather conditions, it's nice fibrous roots, and it can act as a nitrogen scavenger, but it really is difficult to kill. Part of the issue with killing annual ryegrass is the appropriate timing. When do we need to go in and spray it? And like I said earlier, um, it's, it's now a weed. The earlier we spray it, the better. But there's still a little bit of debate on how early is early and are we going to get complete kill. If we look at some of the material from um, the Midwest Cover Crop Council or Oregon, they're telling you that you should get good control if you spray it up until about the eight inch stage and definitely before the first node development on that annual ryegrass. But if we look at Australia, who's actually been battling, you know, annual ryegrass as a weed for a number of years, they're a lot more harsh on when we should be controlling it. They're suggesting that we're, we should be con controlling it at the four to five leaf stage and definitely by the first or second tiller. Um, so we've got this whole issue on timing. When's the best time? We also need to make sure that we're picking the best herbicide and we are putting on the best rate for it. Um, to compound all of that, in the back of your mind when you're considering annual ryegrass as an overwintering cover crop, I'd really like you to think of the resistance issue. Um, when we look at what's going on in Australia, we know how problematic annual ryegrass is to control and how much of a problem it is because of the resistance it has developed. There are biotypes of annual ryegrass in Australia Australia, pardon me, that are resistant to seven different modes of action. To put that in perspective, in Ontario right now, we've got weeds that are resistant to three modes of action, and we, we're not liking it much, okay? To have something that's resistant to seven is definitely problematic, okay? So in some of my trials um, that we've run with the annual ryegrass termination, we were looking at really when is the best time to try and spray it to terminate and what herbicide combinations should we be using? The herbicides I was looking at was glyphosate alone. 
Um, and I was using the 1350 grams acid equivalent. So if you've got a 540 formulation, you're looking at one liter per acre on that one. Um, I've also tank mixed that rate of Roundup or glyphosate with a group one like Select and a group 14 like Aragon. When we look at the trials, um, and this one here, I sprayed early, that April 26th date. I know you're seeing a lot of green and weeds in there, but keep in mind this picture was taken July 6th. I haven't sprayed anything since that April 26th spray date, but what you should be noticing are these really nice pink flags that are in there. Those pink flags are documenting all the annual ryegrass plants that escaped the application of either glyphosate alone or glyphosate with the tank mix. Not only were the plants green and alive, they were starting to set seed, pardon me, sorry, and they were actually pollinating um, when I took the picture on July 6th. So just to put that into perspective, when did this the spray actually go down for development stage? On these crops for me, they were just under the eight inch stage um, for height, but developmental stage, they were at about four to five tillers. So I was within the Midwest Council range, but I was a little late you know, for the Australian range of when we should be controlling this uh, annual ryegrass. So if I look, take a step back and I think, hey, maybe I'm gonna spray it off a little bit earlier. I'm gonna try a fall application. Same thing with the glyphosate, same rate. Um, now I'm going to be hitting the timing that fits both for Australia and the Midwest Council. The problem is when I did that, yep, I killed off the majority of my annual ryegrass, but you're still seeing those three pink flags um, documenting where I had escaped annual ryegrass. And again, that July 6th when I was taking these photos, you can see they're out in seed and even the fall terminated ones, I've got pollination. So this is my best case scenario. I'm controlling it early, like I said you need to be. I'm controlling it with glyphosate and I've tank mixed it with another mode of action, which if you're going to try and get good annual ryegrass control, um, you better be tank mixing your glyphosate with another herbicide, um, with another mode of action, particularly a group one like Selector Assure or the group 14s with Aragon. So these are some of the reasons why I'm a little concerned about having annual ryegrass overwintering. And you're looking at this likely and saying, hey, there's really not a big issue. When, when I look back at those plots, I only saw three flags. My plots are about 20 feet long or eight meters in length. And yeah, I've only got about three plants surviving, but put that into your field, okay? If every 20 feet you're having, you know, three to four annual ryegrass plants survive, that starts to multiply. And I'm gonna say this plot here, where you saw that, that three to four plant surviving in just the glyphosate alone plots, that was really low. In another one of my plots that I sprayed this spring, different soil type, um, I was getting about 30% regrowth on the glyphosate alone applications. I had less regrowth when I was tank mixing that group one with it, but I was still getting regrowth. And what we usually see happening is when we, after we spray, we go back and we look at that annual rye and it looks pretty good. It looks like we've got fairly good kill, but if we look down at the bottom of the annual ryegrass, we see these green bits coming back. And depending on weather conditions and soil conditions, the green that doesn't die back will actually start to form that whole new annual ryegrass plant that will eventually set seed. Those three to four plants that survive every 20 feet, best case scenario, they put out an awful lot of seed. We're looking at about 500 to 1,000 seeds going back for each of those plants. So just on its own, that's a lot of seed going back into our soil seed bank. And then you tie that in with the ability for annual ryegrass to cross-pollinate and spread its genetic variation. So if you've got two of those plants that escaped your herbicide application and they escape because they've got low level um, resistance to that herbicide and you compound that to maybe even they have low level resistance and you know they have different mechanisms of low level resistance 
the resulting progeny, so that F1, is not only going to be resistant to the herbicide, it's going to have two different ways for it to be resistant to that herbicide. Again, causing more headaches down the line. And if you're thinking this doesn't happen that fast, research out of Australia has shown that you can get resistance developing an annual ryegrass in as soon as five generations, not years, generations within that. So you're moving from a situation where you've got ryegrass that was completely susceptible to a herbicide to being over 10 times more resistant to that herbicide in five generations. Okay. In addition, I know when you look at, again, those three to four plants that survive and you're still thinking, well, maybe not a problem, I'm going to get it with my second application of glyphosate because most of us are growing uh, glyphosate resistant crops um, following our cover crop termination. You're right, that second application of glyphosate may kill it, but it also may not. In some of my trials where I've got the ryegrass termination and then I've gone back in and planted soybeans this year, this picture, by the way, was taken this last Monday. And you can see I've put on my second application of glyphosate. This time I've actually upped it to the 1800 grams acid equivalent rate, which is, you know, the 1.34 liters per acre rate. I still got ryegrass that have survived both applications of glyphosate. And as of Monday, they were out there pollinating. Okay. So for me, that is a concern when I look back at how ryegrass behaves and how the genetics and gene variation can happen and how quickly it can happen. So if I'm looking at terminating my ryegrass because that's what I've decided to put in for an overwintering cover crop, um, you need to be terminating that crop as soon as possible. Okay, you need to be using a high rate of glyphosate and I'm going to say you, I would consider using that 1800 grams acid equivalent or the 1.34 liters per acre. And if you've decided you're not doing that, please at least use the 1350. Do not use the low rate. You also need to be tank mixing that glyphosate rate with another herbicide with another mode of action. Um, so the group ones like Select and Assure work really well um, to help increase your rate of kill, I guess, on the annual ryegrass. But you can also use group 14 with Aragon. Uh, you, you get the um, injury symptoms and the kill a little bit earlier. Keep in mind, even when you're tank mixing with other modes of, modes of action, please watch for regrowth because it is likely going to happen. Okay, so those are some of the reasons why, like Ann said, annual ryegrass um, as far as an overwintering cover crop is likely not my favorite. I'm really worried that it's going to become a weed issue for us down the line. On the other hand, if we're looking at cereal rye, it has a lot of the same benefits that annual ryegrass has, but when we're, we're considering it, pardon me, and cereal rye is way easier to control. We can control cereal rye with one application of glyphosate. We can easily do it with that mid-rate, that 1350 grams acid equivalent, and the truth of the matter is timing isn't so much an issue with respect to control. We can pick when we want to terminate it based on how much residue we, we want to deal with when we go planting. In these plot pictures below, you can see there's the amount of residue that's left um, after terminating cereal rye this year on May 14th versus terminating it two weeks later on May 29th. A lot of biomass can accumulate in two weeks with cereal rye. So you want to make sure you're terminating it when it's best going to suit your planter and the crop that you're putting in. The other thing to consider with cereal rye is that it does have allopathic effects. So we are going to get a little boost in weed control um, when we choose cereal rye as, as our cover. So how clean can our plots look, or our, our fields look, pardon me, when we're spraying uh, cereal rye? This one here, this image had just glyphosate going down at 1350 grams acid equivalent, so the one liter per acre. I sprayed it on April 29th. I took this photo a month later, and there's absolutely no regrowth, okay? It's not like annual ryegrass where I've got three or four flags in there. It's clean. Um, and the reality is if I tank mix 
this um, the Roundup with you know Select or or Aragon, I'm not going to get any improvement on control of of cereal rye. The glyphosate will take care of it on its own. You might want to put in a group one select or Aragon if you have other weeds that you're concerned about. But with respects to just killing your cereal rye, you're good with just the glyphosate, okay? How much residue are you gonna get? Again, it depends a little bit on when you're killing off that cereal rye. If I kill off my cereal rye in the fall, Okay, so November 7th, I really don't get much residue left on the surface. What residue you're seeing in this image is really all uh, winter wheat residue left from this previous crop. There's the amount of residue that I had left um, on April 26th, and then I had taken this picture May 15th, so about two weeks after I, I sprayed that plot. So if we look at the allopathic effects, and that's sort of where I'm going to end up with on, on this talk, we actually get a fair bit of weed suppression with that cereal rye. If you're looking in between these two rows of cereal rye, nothing's been sprayed here, and it's pretty clean. There's not very many weeds growing in there. Right beside it, where an application of glyphosate's actually gone down, we've got a fair few weeds popping up. So we know we've got a pretty good effect um, with respect to weed suppression out of that cereal rye. So if I'm going to talk about cereal rye termination and controlling this one, it is way easier than annual rye. It makes me feel a whole lot better. I'm not worried about resistance developing because I know that I'm going to get consistent and really good control of this crop with just glyphosate, and I can use the lower rate, that mid rate. My termination on when I'm going to kill off the cereal rye, it's more dependent on how much residue I can deal with and how much I'm comfortable with as a producer rather than if I wait too long, I'm not gonna be able to control this cover crop. The other thing you might wanna consider when you are determining when you're killing that off is a little bit of long-term forecast um, on, on where you think that spring's moisture is gonna be. You don't want any competition, I guess, with um, you know, the cereal rye potentially taking the moisture out of your soil before you get planted. So, where I'm going to jump to next, and, and there's a switch in slides here, uh, Francois Tardif uh, isn't able to participate today, but he's been doing a lot of research on the allopathic effects of cereal rye and how we might be able to use those effects um, as a tool in our toolbox to control some of these weeds. So using cereal rye not just as a cover crop and all the benefits that it brings, but also as a method of weed control. He's looked at a number of uh, problematic weeds, but in particular, Canada fleabane and glyphosate Canada fleabane, resistant Canada fleabane, um, because it's becoming more and more problematic for producers. We know that Canada fleabane itself, its life cycle, it actually has two different life cycles. It has the one that we're more familiar with, the winter annual standard one, where the seed drops in late summer, we get that fall germination of Canada fleabane. It, in the spring, when it starts to grow, it comes out as that rosette, and then we get the typical flower production midsummer. That second life cycle is almost more problematic with respects to weed control for us. In this one, in this life cycle variation, either the Canada fleabane doesn't overwinter well and is killed, or it just germinates in the spring, but what happens is we have essentially no fall germination. There's definitely no rosette that comes up early spring. The plant jumps pretty much to that juvenile stage right away and it starts to bolt as soon as it germinates in the spring. And then it flowers in the midsummer, just like the life cycle one. The problem is what they find is these spring germinated Canada flea veins, they grow super fast and they're a little bit more robust than our fall germinated ones. And some of these are going to, they're gonna cause us a, a few headaches um, with respects to control. We know that Canada fleabane is particularly adapted to no-till, and that's part of the reason why we're seeing more and more Canada fleabane is because we are moving to a no-till or a reduced-till 
um, cropping situations, we know the benefits that it, it gives to our soil. But along with that no-till situation, we are seeing these Canada flea banes popping up. We have been recommending to farmers that if the problem gets too aggressive, especially when we have glyphosate-resistant Canada flea bane, that tillage is always an option. And tillage is an option. Tillage works better for controlling Canada flea bane when we're using complete inversion. If we're using something like what happened in this field where there was vertical tillage only going on, and the population of Canada flea bane was very, very dense. What happens is sometimes when we use the vertical tillage, we go in and instead of completely taking the Canada flea bane out by its roots and killing it, we basically lift the whole clump up, we move it a little bit and drop it and it reroots. Um, those Canada flea bane that we've tried to kill with um, tillage and weren't successful, they're, they sometimes do not respond as well to herbicide applications the following spring. They're a little bit more problematic to control. So what Francois is doing at Guelph along with his grad students is he's looking at using cereal rye to see if the allopathic effects might help us control these problematic weeds. In this uh, image here, and some of these look familiar because I, I, when Anne was talking, I was like, hmm, I see those, those pictures have been shared between Francois, Mike Cobra, and Anne. So I apologize for the repeats. Um, but you've got a strip of cereal rye that's been planted into a no-till situation and right beside it, a strip of no-till that's been left barren. You can see the population and the density of the Canada flea bane, but you don't see those Canada flea banes in that rye. It's doing a fantastic job of suppression. And when you look along the edge, it's even starting to suppress some of those Canada flea bane outside of the canopy. If you talk to my cobra, he calls that the halo effect from cereal rye. It, it does seem to extend a little bit past from where it's actually growing. When we look at the Canada flea bane that's actually growing within the rye, because there are some, it's not 100%, they are much less vigorous than the ones that are growing outside of the cereal rye. And like Anne said earlier, the difference is about uh, a reduction of four times the growth. We've got about a 10 centimeter uh, flea bane growing within the canopy and about a 40 centimeter one growing outside the canopy. I know it's easy to say that that reduction in height is likely due to light interception, but when Francois tests that, really the cereal rye is only intercepting about 5% of the light. So there's no way that that re growth reduction and suppression is coming just from light interception. There has to be something else like the allopathic effect happening. This image here Francois put in to show, again, just highlight how much uh, Canada flea bane enjoys no-till situations. You've got the flea bane growing where there's a no-till strip and right beside it the, the field had been cultivated and you see pretty much no Canada flea bane growing. It is almost entirely uh, lambs quarters or annuals. So one of the other aspects Francois is looking at is is cereal rye going to do as good a job in a cultivated situation controlling other weeds? And the answer is yes. Here, when the plots have been cultivated, you still have very few weeds growing up in that cereal rye, and you can see right beside it where it's been tilled, and you've got the uh, lamb's quarter coming. The, the density that is actually a, possible in that field situation, and there's Mike Cobra's halo effect going on again. Okay, so what Francois is hoping to do by looking at this research is finding a way where we can implement cereal rye um, as part of our weed control program in addition to all the benefits it's giving us as a cover crop. And part of that reason is we are having difficulty controlling some of these glyphosate resistant weeds. And I know I've talked about fleabane mostly today, but there are some other weeds that cereal rye could help us with. But even in addition to those glyphosate resistant weeds, we're hoping that it can help benefit control some of our annuals like lamb's quarters and pigweed as well. In addition, we know that all, despite our best attempts, when we go in with herbicides, we're trying to hit those weeds when they're going to be most susceptible. 
um, at the best rates and the best timing, but sometimes it doesn't always work out for us. And sometimes the herbicides don't work as well as we anticipate. So Francois is also hoping that if we can incorporate those that cereal rye, we can perhaps eliminate or mitigate some of the escapes that are going to happen when we have those herbicide failures or we just aren't timing it correctly. And some of his examples were this year where he saw some taller flea bang that escaped a dicamba application, um, possibly because they were a little bit too tall for control, or if we accidentally put on a lower rate of herbicide that, than what we should expect, like this image here with 2,4-D, or we're, when Aragon just doesn't do its job or, and we're expecting it to. And that happens when we're trying to control um, particularly the glyphosate-resistant Canada fleabang. So that's pretty much my summary. I'm, I hope that the take-home is that you're going to aim towards maybe another crop to, or cover crop to overwinter other than annual ryegrass. Like Anne said, it does have a time and a place. I just a little concerned that the overwintering is not the right one. My preference really would be the cereal rye because it's so much easier to control and because you do get that allopathic effect. And that's pretty much it for me. Great. Do you have any questions? <laughs> yeah, we actually had a, a couple questions come through while you were uh, chatting. One question and it ties into kind of your last point there is the, the ryegrass kind of, you know, you, you don't like to see it being used uh, as, a, as a cover crop, maybe overwintering as much because it is difficult. But the question was, um, you know, after spraying annual ryegrass, how long, you know, or, or when should I check for regrowth? Okay, that's a good question. Um, Glyphosate alone, we know is slow acting, right? So it's going to take at least a week to even start to see effects from the glyphosate. Um, when I'm starting to see regrowth, uh, it's usually after the two week mark. I can definitely see regrowth, you know, 28 days a month after I've sprayed. Um, usually that month after, if I'm going back in and rating or reevaluating my application, what I'm starting to see is, you know, I can get either, you know, low levels of regrowth, say 10%, or like I said, this spring, I was getting some that were back to 30% about a month after spray. So I'd be looking anywhere in between the two, two week after spray to a month for sure. Okay. Okay. That's, that's great. Um, we have another question here. Uh, and this is on CRI. Uh, the question okay. is, Spray 2,4-D in the fall if we have cereal rye planted in the field. Uh, sorry, I'm just, so the 2,4-D shouldn't harm the cereal rye. 2,4-D um, should just be getting, and I'm not sure if I'm understanding this question correctly. So if I'm not, whoever asked it, please rephrase or get me back on track here. But 2,4-D should be fine on the cereal rye. I wouldn't be worried about hurting it. Um, it should just be taking out broadleaf weeds at that point. Um, if you're putting down the, cereal, the 2,4-D in the fall, it should help you get any broadleaf weeds that are maybe left in that field. And in that respect, it's probably a good combination. I'm not sure if that's really what you were looking for though. We can um, we can see if the person will will write back and and clarify their question and and go uh, from there. But we have a, another question uh, that answers the question. Thank you. Okay. <laughs> Final question here, unless there's others that are are going to come in. But um, the question is again on on cereal rye. Um, how long should I wait to plant my next crop after burning down cereal rye? Okay. Um, and that's going it, to, it, I'm going to say it depends a bit on the crop. Um, I know people have had um, some issues planting corn right after. Um, there's been times where they found that maybe your corn yield drops a little bit, but it doesn't happen all the time. We do probably need to look at that a little bit more and see what is maybe causing uh, the decreased corn stand. 
But generally what they're saying is if you're planting corn after cereal rye, make sure you're waiting at least um, like two weeks, 14 days before you're going in and planting the corn. Maybe, you know, if you can push it a little bit longer, that would be good too. Soys, we haven't seen a lot of um, impact of the cereal rye on soys. So the truth of the matter is you can spray, it, it's what you're comfortable with and what your planter is able to handle. You can spray off the cereal rye, wait a couple of weeks until you know, you've know you got less residue to deal with and then go in and plant. But if the rye is small enough and your planter is able to move that residue or trash, you can actually spray it pretty much the day before uh, planting and plant in. You just need to go back to what Anne said about good ag agronomic principles. Make sure you're getting good soil to seed contact with your soys so that you've got a good stand. Perfect. Okay. Thanks, Chris. That appears like the end of the questions. I don't see any more coming through. Uh, so we just want to thank you again for taking time to uh, present some of the work of yourself and Francois. Um, I think you give a great overview with regards to uh, cover cropping and maybe some of the issues with um, particular cover crops when it comes to winter killing and, and you know, modes of action. So now we're just going to wrap up um, the presentation and webinar here. Um, but first, we're going to go over um, a brief survey that Grain Farmers of Ontario commissioned on cover crops a few years ago. And let me just move the slides ahead. Back in 2016, UFO commissioned a survey to really better understand cover cropping practices here in Ontario. Um, so we surveyed uh, close to 230 corn farmers and 164 wheat farmers. And this was really to get a better sense of some of the current cover cropping practices that have been used in Ontario based on a 2015 uh, crop year. So yes, this data is a little old, but I think it's still valid in, in understanding cover crop use uh, within the province. So firstly, we're gonna look at the corn survey. So in total, as I mentioned, 231 corn growers were surveyed and the results showed that roughly 10.8% of these growers planted a cover crop on their 2015 corn crop. Now we didn't get into the specifics of, of when, we just basically said, um, did you plant a cover crop in the crop or after harvest on those fields? So 10.8% said they did, which um, you know, is, is quite interesting. And from that information, uh, we examined that 10.8% of growers uh, that said that they planted a cover crop. And according to our survey, that 43.5% uh, responded that they planted um, that crop on 43.5% of their corn acres. So obviously we can see that cover cropping in corn is, is quite low. Um, and I think we can agree that it does present a more complex approach to seeding, especially within crop. Um, but it, it was interesting to find that, uh, you know, 10.8% of growers who did plant a cover crop in their corn crop in 2015, did it on 43.5% of their total corn acres. Now just a quick look at winter wheat. Um, as Ann mentioned, and, uh, and Chris as well, that red clover obviously is a, is a big component of that. And, and this survey really allowed us to, you know, get a better sense of the amount of, of growers that are planting cover crops into winter wheat. So again, we were able to determine that 58.5% uh, of growers uh, planted a cover crop in winter wheat. But which was the most interesting I found was that um, the survey showed that 58.5% of the growers who did plant a cover crop in their winter wheat, in their winter wheat crop planted it on 92.2% of their wheat acres. So I think that really ties back into what Ann mentioned uh, with regards to the work that Dave Hooker has done with the long-term trials and, and, you know, the value that, that red clover presents to that subsequent uh, corn crop and, and soybean crop. 
uh, with regards to nitrogen. So I think this survey is a, is a neat piece to really tie that all in together. And uh, just on that red clover piece, we, we wanted to better understand actually how many, um, how many growers were, were planting red clover. So it was determined that of a cover crop in, uh, in a wheat field, 62% of that was planted into red clover. Now, just to reiterate what Anne had mentioned earlier, um, the Midwest Cover Crop Council has provided a number of resources, whether it be on their online uh, cover cropping tool or their um, app tool. Uh, it gives a good sense of, of allowing growers to identify species of cover crops and the particular timing for their soil type and region they live. So feel free to check out that resource if you're interested. Um, I know that's something that the Ontario cover crop strategy is very much promoting um, and it's something that GFO is, is trying to promote to our members to uh, better share some of the resources that are out there uh, when growers are looking to plant cover crops. Just to follow up, um, there will be a survey to gain feedback from participants. Uh, this will be sent out tomorrow. Um, again, this survey will need to be completed to claim your CEU credits. And again, this survey allows the opportunity to suggest new topics or areas of interest that you, the participant, would like to see. Um, ultimately, we really would like to see feedback from this as it's important to, to benefit future webinars and future participants. So uh, we'd greatly appreciate that. Uh, for those of you that um, have the QR scanner for your CEU credits, uh, please feel free to scan that now. Uh, for those of you that don't, uh, there will be an area within the webinar uh, survey to fill in for your CEU credits, uh, so don't worry. So I'll leave this uh, slide up, and uh, if there are any final questions or comments, please feel free to pass them along, but otherwise, we're going to sign off. So we want to thank everyone for participating in today's webinar. We hope that you find it useful, and please stay tuned to future webinars where we will try to provide the, the next uh, latest and greatest information uh, for agriculture. Thank you.